Hey, all you beautiful people, and welcome to the Glorious and the Mundane podcast. I'm your host, Christy Knuckles. Happy first official week of spring. I know I'm a cheeseball about this kind of thing, but I've just been driving around and seeing the trees budding and the daffodils showing up early to the party, as always. And it just makes me hopeful inside when we get to look around and see creation doing what it was designed and created to do to respond to the seasons that God put in them. It's just beautiful. I was reading this morning in Genesis 8 around the Lord's promise, and it was after Noah and his family had obeyed God with this plan that seemed literally crazy to build an ark because a flood was coming, even though they had never seen rain. Well, they build this ark, they get on it, they wait out the rains that did come, and they're finally able to remove the ark's cover. And they saw that the surface of the ground was drying. And God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you, your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you, and bring out all the living creatures that are with you, the birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth, and they will spread all over the earth, and they'll be fruitful and multiply. And I love this. Just like the animals actually came to Noah to get onto the ark without being prompted, like literally the Bible says in Genesis 6.20 that every kind of animal would come to Noah so that he could keep them alive. So they just came being prompted by God, I guess. And then it says in Genesis 8.19 that all the animals, when they got off of the ark, it says they came out of the ark by families. Isn't that beautiful? Creation obeying God instinctively during this rescue plan of the ark. And then in verse 20, it says that Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Isn't that beautiful? The first thing that Noah did when he got on dry land was he worshiped, as if to say to everyone, come magnify the Lord with me as we praise Him for what He's done. And then it says, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, He said to Himself, I love that, God said to Himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings. Even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward, I will never again strike down every living thing as I've done. And He pronounces this over this new beginning. As long as the earth endures, he says, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, the day and night will not cease. So when you look around the next few weeks and you see that seed time is beginning, the cold is beginning to yield to the warmth of spring, and as the sun rises and sets on this new season coming forth, I hope that it reminds you of the new beginning that God established for us way back when that we get to live in even now. As I sat down to think through this podcast for this week, I couldn't help but remember this time last year that I talked about spring beckoning, but winter says, don't forget. I was thinking through my own life, even just from this winter season, what I'll take with me from it. I looked back on that podcast, and I'd love to just say it over us again, because I found myself just coming around it again this week. I talked about how winter is necessary. It always is. There is stuff within us that needs to lie dormant. I talked about winter being like us being cocooned in hope. Winter is us being wrapped in hope for what's to come, knowing that we'll emerge from this season with new eyes and ears and hearts. And last winter, only a year ago, I was struggling with my hearing loss, which God has healed this past year over time, and I'm so, so grateful beyond words for that. 
I'll take with me some precious memories from that winter that marked me forever. Even those mornings where I found myself bent over in the bathtub with my face almost touching the water, wondering what in the world God was doing, wondering if my hearing would return, trusting Him through something so scary, yet it's so precious to me somehow that it gave me the distinct privilege of being utterly desperate for Him in that time. I'll never take that lightly. I don't want to forget or push forward into spring, this is what I was saying last time, without taking that memory with me. And therein lies the tension. Spring beckons, but winter says, don't forget. Winter says, remember when I wrapped you tight beneath the covers and you were still enough to watch snowfall? Remember how I taught you lessons that the busyness of spring could never bring? Remember how God used me to bring His voice so close. Last winter for me was unusually hard, and I'm still carrying with me the lessons from it. In fact, I let it teach me a lot going into this winter. But I've learned that there is also a thing called seasons of consolation that we hit after sort of experiencing seasons of grief and hardship, where we make it through the flood after we've hunkered down and the ark cover comes off and we step out onto dry land, often there's this season of consolation and hope that follows. And I think what we take from this is understanding that we have such a gift in letting our hope seep out onto others because of what we've been through. My daughters and I went on a little trip this past weekend to see cousins for a few days who live in a much bigger city than we do now. Where their home is actually is definitely more countryside, and it's gorgeous. I could see deer and bunnies and squirrels and horses from their kitchen as I sat there riding a little bit at their farm table. But for a brief bit, I had a meeting downtown one of those days, and I ventured out into the big city. And I realized how much living where we live in Tennessee has absolutely spoiled me in terms of wide open spaces. I was gridlocked in traffic for almost an hour and a half on the way to the meeting, and then gridlocked at 3.45 p.m., I might add, on the way out of the city after the meeting. So the girls and I made it into our county right at sunset back in Tennessee, and there's this little point where we reach this certain stretch of highway that always just kind of says home. We get kind of all smiles inside. With the hope of spring on the horizon all around us and the sun setting, it was gorgeous, we knew that this called for some good music. So we ended up putting on one of my favorite records, an old Mindy Smith album that I used to listen to a lot when Ellie was little. Annie Rose was asleep in the back seat, and so Ellie and I were just in the front seats together just watching the sunset. And I knew I had a lot ahead of me this week that I'd return to in terms of stuff I needed to get done. It's more than I'm really capable of, if I'm honest. <laughs> I will need the supernatural to meet me in the mundane, which I can rest in that. It'll have to be supernatural to get it all done. But for the moment, I just felt this hope springing up in my belly. And I decided I didn't care if Ellie thought I was a cheese ball, just like I have to not care if you think I'm a cheese ball. <laughs> but I decided to just let my hope seep out on her. I won't tell you exactly what I said to her because it was just kind of this sacred moment. But all in all, in so many words, I just let her know how beautiful she looked right then with that gorgeous, gigantic sunset shining in on her face. Then I told her how it shined through to her insides too and how they're even more beautiful. It was just this beautiful moment just to let that hope that was springing up in me as I looked at spring everywhere we could see as we were driving in 
and I let it seep out onto her. What will you take with you from this winter? Maybe you need to build an altar as you say goodbye to hunkering down. Maybe as you emerge, you're able to take some time in your journal or maybe go have coffee with a few close friends and build an altar right there with them to say, come magnify the Lord with me for what He's brought me through. Last week, we talked about the beautiful order that we see in Deuteronomy 10.8. It says, at that time, the Lord set apart the Levites to carry the Ark of the Covenant, to stand before the Lord, to minister to Him, and to bless in His name to this day. I shared how the Lord showed me the beauty in standing before Him to minister to Him and then pronouncing blessings in His name. I know some of you might be thinking, isn't it arrogant sort of that the Lord needs to be ministered to when we're all down here suffering on earth? (laughs) I can see how it sounds that way. And of course, His ministering over us and to us is important to Him. I believe that. Part of David coming into the king's courts in the beginning was because David ministered to Saul with his worship. Saul had spirits that tormented him. And one of the only things that lulled the torment was David's music and his worship. I think the point is, yes, it's important that we get ministered to, but where are we going to get our deepest needs met? I don't know about you, but I catch myself all the time showing up at other places and to other people besides God to get my needs met and to be ministered to. It's okay, obviously, to enjoy other people, enjoy other things. We get to enjoy them. But the best way to enjoy them is when we've released them of having to bless us and minister to us. The way we release others is that we continually show up with our faces towards God, like those Levites did, and how they stood before the Lord that day. I think I told you that word stood there. It means to stand or to face. And I said that I love to think of that as, where else would we go? Often I say that out loud to God, even when I'm praying for my kids' health, if one of them's sick and not feeling good, I just say out loud to God, God, where else would we go right now? We face you today. Let that minister to you, God, that we face you today with all we're facing today. But have to believe that something happens when we choose to face Him and praise Him first above all things. I can't help but think of Paul and Silas when they were in jail at midnight, even in the darkest hour, it says that they were praying and singing hymns and all the other prisoners were listening to them and their praise caused an earthquake. And it says that all the doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Everyone's chains, not just Paul and Silas, the chains of everyone around them fell loose. There's something in our choice to go after the chains with praise. Before you think this isn't for you because you're not a worship leader, let me tell you, you are a worship leader. It doesn't matter what side of the platform we're on, whether we lead from a stage like me, or if you lead from out in the congregation and just out in the world, we are all ministers of the Lord. All of us are created to worship and really lead worship as we adore the one who created us. We worship with our mouths, our hearts, and our lives. You might not be leading songs from a stage, but you're leading songs with your life. If you are in Christ, His presence is in you, and you are like those Levites. You are a carrier of God's presence. 
The Levites were priests who ministered back in those times of Mosaic law, but you're a priest who now ministers because of Jesus' fulfilling of the covenant and the promise that God made with Abraham. This is 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. It says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, to proclaim the virtues of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You don't have to be called to ministry in the sense that you're on staff at a church or some sort of ministry in order to be a minister or a priest. You are called because you are in Christ and you now represent Him to the world. One of the first talks on worship that I ever heard was from Louis Giglio. When we had first met he and Shelley in the late 90s, he was the first person I ever heard say that we're not just worship leaders, we are lead worshipers. This was such an amazing challenge to all of us who were maybe just realizing that there was actually more to worship than just leading songs. We were being challenged that worship was a corporate response, yes, but also very much an individual response to who God is and what He's done. We were being challenged that worship leading continued even after we stepped off of the platform and into our mundane. You and I, we are lead worshipers. We choose every day what and who we're going to magnify with our lives. We choose every day who and what we're going to worship. Think about it. If ascribing glory to God is acknowledging Him or laying credit where credit is due, think about how we do that every day. I'm all about giving honor where we need to give honor, and sometimes the people in our lives are in that place of honor, and they're worthy of us honoring them, of course. But I think about all the times that I've chosen to magnify my circumstances rather than put that metaphorical magnifying glass up to who God is, His faithfulness, His character, the fact that He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Sometimes, though, I put my magnifying glass up to, like, my past all too often. I've acknowledged or given too much credit to past mistakes, or I get in the habit of rehearsing my failures over and over, maybe even past hurts from people that I've put on repeat in my brain. Even when I've already technically forgiven those people, I need to release them again. It's important to get godly counsel around our past hurts and pains, so I get that. I'm not diminishing the need to get counsel and deal with the things in our past. Obviously, I'm all for that, so that we're able to get in this healthy place of seeing God for who He really is and keeping the focus on His faithfulness and laying credit where credit is due to this God who has delivered us and is continually delivering us. I know for me, I've gone through seasons where I've given other voices in my life way too much credit for way too long. I think about how much I needed their validation, and I even wanted it at times more than I even wanted or trusted the voice of God and what He says about me. None of us want to talk about this, the way that we evaluate people and their opinions and their voices over our own Father. But it's so healthy to assess it, isn't it, where we're laying credit in our lives and who and what we are choosing to magnify. I love that God will press into us on this. I love that His Spirit will come with conviction in our gut over this kind of stuff. This is because He knows what we were made for, and He doesn't give up on us and what we were made for. You know when His voice presses in on you. It's distinct, and there's usually a quick softening of the heart when it's really Him 
This is because love is always at the very center of who God is. Even when He says no to us, and even when He convicts us of sin, it kind of reminds me of those Levites when they comforted the people after the law was read over them. He convicts us of sin, but all at the same time, it's like He says, go be merry. My joy is your strength. We have this friend, Larry Green, who's someone who has taught us so much about hearing from the Lord. And one of the things that he always says is, we learn to discern the voice of God, and we know we can trust Him when loving thoughts enter our mind. I love that. It can even be correction or the conviction of sin, but it's this loving thought. In fact, your own spirit will agree with it when it's Him, because the Bible says that He put His Spirit in us that cries, Abba, it cries, Daddy. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says, But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive our adoption as sons. And because you are sons and daughters, God sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, you are also an heir through God. And I'll just piggyback that with Hebrews 12, 5, and 6. My son, my daughter, do not take lightly the discipline of the Lord and do not lose heart when He rebukes you. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and He chastises every son He receives. So when that correction comes, we can receive it as one who is being received. We receive it as one who is received, one who is loved. Isn't that beautiful? And then what he does is when he speaks is that he'll confirm that loving thought over and over, whether it's for correction or it's just him speaking wisdom and direction to us. Sometimes I found he'll confirm it multiple times over time if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. I believe this is how the Holy Spirit's conviction leads us to the softening of our hearts ultimately. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. I told you earlier that I had certain people in my life over the years that I just wanted their specific approval, their word or stamp of validation, and God very specifically seemed to withhold it from me. I mean, like even to the point where I wondered if those people even liked me. (laughs) That's how much I worried about their validation over me. I'll never forget it just bringing me to my knees eventually. And God so lovingly spoke to my heart and pressed in with such love along with that pressing. My heart, it felt hurt and held all at the same time. I felt loved by His discipline. I felt seen and cared for that He'd come in and value Himself on my behalf when I didn't know how to value Him above everything in that season. That pressing felt like Him saying to me and to you, my child, I'm the only one who can validate you. I made you. I knitted you together in your mother's womb. Only I can put my thumbprint on you and say, you're mine. Don't you know I'll withhold from you other validation that you seek and even worship? Because I know you're weak and that you'll take that validation as being good enough for you. That pat on the back you seek and you want, it's not sufficient for you. So I'm coming and I'm valuing myself on your behalf. Only I will do. You are made to worship me. And here's the other thing. Only God can bear the weight of our worship. My friend Lauren Chandler, she says very wise things. And she said this to me one time and it stuck. The reason it stuck is because I've actually seen it to be true. When we make accomplishments or experiences or people the object of our worship, and I do this all the time, sometimes not even realizing I'm doing it, 
they can't hold the weight of our worship. They will crush underneath the weight. And sometimes as they fall, as ultimately the expectations that we ourselves have placed on them just don't hold up, they crush us on the way down. Only God can bear the weight of all the worship. Now, I realize that for many of you, you calling yourself a worshiper and even a lead worshiper is just super new territory, and that's okay. It's okay to start a little at a time. I'll tell you this. I've gone through seasons where I felt like I've been lying dormant almost as a worshiper, and therefore being a lead worshiper was just kind of off the table. Sometimes a winter of the soul can do that. Thankfully, a third of the Psalms, as we've said before, are songs of lament. They're sung in a circle. You start with mustering up the courage to sing of the steadfast love of the Lord, and then you're able just to lay your soul's sorrow bare before God and everyone. And then the important part is that you bookend it all over again with the steadfast love of the Lord. I have to believe that there's something for everyone in worshiping God if we are allowed to be that honest with God. Look up Songs of Lament sometime, and you'll be comforted by how honest you can be and still bless God. For some of us, we just need that courage to break the silence of our worship. Let's face it, we have an enemy of our soul who is seeking to devour us every day. And he's working even harder than we are to get us to a place of giving up. And he wants to silence our worship because he knows how powerful it is. He wants to silence even our lament because he knows that lament is healing to the soul. When we have bookended our sorrow with singing of the steadfast love of the Lord, and when we can proclaim praise right from the soil of our hardships, he knows that's powerful and it makes the chains fall. I was recently at a women's conference in Atlanta and I heard Liz Curtis Higgs speak about some women on the Bible. And I was so struck by her teaching on Leah. I kind of wanted to share a little bit of kind of what I gleaned from it. In Genesis 25, we find the story of the birth of Esau and Jacob. Jacob and Esau are the sons of Isaac and Rebekah and the grandsons of Abraham. We're told that these twin boys struggled within her. And I love this. Verse 22 says, she says, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and she said to her, Side note, such a huge lesson that she went and inquired of the Lord. Amazing. (laughs) But the Lord said to her, You have two nations in your womb, and two peoples within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. The firstborn was Esau, and it says that he came out red and hairy all over. So that's random. And the other brother, Jacob, came out holding on to Esau's heel. Well, as these boys grew up, we basically learned that Isaac, the father, loves Esau the most, mainly because he's a hunter. My ESV Bible actually says that Isaac may have loved him most because he loved to eat the meat that Esau brought in from the field. (laughs) So it may not have been actually about the judge of his character, but just that he was just hungry. I don't know. But it also says that Rebecca loved Jacob, the younger. Well, we learn in the next several chapters that Esau is just kind of indifferent towards his firstborn status, which is basically lame. And he sells his birthright to Jacob one day because he was hungry, and I think Jacob was making some stew. And of course, Jacob was making the stew because he was plotting to get Esau to sell his birthright. Talk about complicated plot lines. But then we learn a few chapters later that Rebecca overhears the father, Isaac, telling Esau, 
to go out into the field and bring back some game and prepare some delicious food so that he can eat of it and then give him his blessing. Well, the blessing of the father back then was extremely important because it would establish the identity, of course, of the heir of the family, which in this family's case had everything to do with what was promised to Abraham and then to Isaac. So there was a lot at stake. So Rebecca goes to Jacob to tell him what she's heard Isaac say to Esau. And she basically wants Jacob to put on Esau's clothes and go poses him to the father. Isaac's eyesight was apparently failing. So she wants him to go in and pretend he's Esau. Well, you know, Esau's skin was like real hairy. So she even goes as far as getting some skins of some young goats and she puts it on Jacob's hands and the smooth part of his neck. And so he goes in, this is like an intense level of deception here. He goes into the father with Esau's clothes on, the goat skins to make him hairy and with some delicious food that Rebecca had prepared. Well, being, you know, the sweet, old, blind and hungry person that Isaac was, he just thinks that Jacob is Esau and he gives Jacob Esau's blessing, which normally would have gone obviously to the firstborn And Jacob now is this younger one who's received this. So there's so much we can learn from this story, so many little aspects of the way things played out and maybe why they played out. But I'm only really telling you this to kind of give you the backstory on Jacob and how he gets to his wives. Esau, the brother who lost his birthright and his blessing is super bitter. He's bitter at Jacob, of course, and the only thing that consoles him, the Bible says, is basically plotting to kill Jacob. So Rebecca and Isaac send Jacob away. They're like, you must flee. They instruct him where to go. They tell him that you need to go to this family and you need to find a wife. So Jacob heads east and he goes towards where his father tells him to head. And he comes upon this family who his father tells him to go to. They're shepherds and shepherdesses. And Jacob begins to converse with these shepherds. He asks them if they know Laban, which is his mother's brother, and he's the one he's supposed to seek after for a wife. Well, he notices that there's three flocks here of sheep by this well, and there's a huge stone over the well's mouth. And the shepherds tell him, like, we basically can't move the stone and water the sheep until all the flocks have gathered. It was sort of a neighborly thing to do, and apparently the stone over the water was really heavy, and they only wanted to move it once. But then they point out to him, oh, look, here she comes now. This is the last flock coming in. And Jacob looks up and it's Rachel. She's coming back with this herd of sheep. And he gets caught up in emotion, just seeing that she's his family, but also she's gorgeous. (laughs) And back then, there's a thing, kind of those familial kiss that could happen Like if just a man and a woman were to kiss in the public, it would be super not okay. But if you're family, there's like this familial kiss. But I think we find out that he's basically smitten with her later. So we believe that maybe this kiss he gives her right here is just like this, you know, family excuse to just like lay one on her. (laughs) But it says he first just picks up the stone basically like it's a, you know, a little feather and waters Laban's sheep, her father's sheep. His adrenaline must have just giving him supernatural strength in the moment. And it just says he lays this kiss on her and he begins to weep out loud. Some commentaries say that it was just a mix of all those emotions I just said, just the long journey. He made it to his destination. He's made it to this family to seek a wife. He found the family. He found this place to belong. And of course, he found this gorgeous person that the Bible says is beautiful in form and appearance. Well, we find that Laban, her dad, actually has two daughters, 
and much like the plot line that Jacob had just run from, the older daughter, in Laban's eyes, was the one that would need to be married off first. Now, her name was Leah. And what the Bible says about her is that Leah had weak eyes. Well, there's like some controversy over what weak really meant. It could mean tender, literally or figuratively. It could mean faint or weak, kind of soft. I think regardless, it's just kind of hard because Jacob just had it for Rachel. And as we all know, there's not much you can do about it when that happens. <laughs> so Jacob tells Laban he will serve him for seven years in order to be able to marry Rachel. Well, it says that the seven years seemed like only a few days to Jacob because he loved Rachel so much. Well, at the end of the seven years, Jacob goes to Laban and he's like, time's up. Give me my wife, please. So Laban, being the trickster he is, apparently that runs in the family, he goes and gathers all the people in the place, and he makes a huge feast for this wedding. But that night, he brings Jacob, his daughter, Leah. Again, it's night. She would have probably been heavily veiled. There would have been this big celebration. There was probably wine. So Jacob takes her. He lies with her. Well, the next morning, he wakes up. And of course, he was not given Rachel as his wife. He was given Leah. Well, Jacob runs to Laban, and he's like, what is this you have done to me? One has to kind of notice that all of Jacob's own trickstering has sort of caught up with him at this point. <laughs> Laban tells him basically, well, where I'm from, the oldest has to marry first. But Laban says, if you'll stay the wedding week with Leah, and then I'll give you Rachel in turn if you work for seven more years. Needless to say, Jacob does what it takes. He finishes the wedding week with Leah, and then he's given Rachel for seven more years of work. Well, the Bible basically tells us that Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. It just is what it is. Genesis chapter 28, verse 31 says that when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. It says that Leah conceived, and she had a son who she named Reuben, saying, Because the Lord has looked on my affliction, and now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me a son also, and she called him Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son, and she said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons, and she named him Levi. Before I go on to the fourth son, I just have to say, I don't know what Leah's relationship with God was like or what her conversations were in the secret place, but I can only imagine that she conversed with him so many times through her loneliness, throughout all of Jacob's dislike of her over the years. I'm sure it was so painful to play second fiddle, but I do know that God saw her and he did reach down, and he blessed her with sons. And back then, to bear a son for your husband was like the highest form of honor for a wife. God opened her womb and blessed her. But gosh, I could so quickly relate with how Leah viewed that blessing as useful rather than beautiful. With her first son, Reuben, whose name means, Behold a son, I can just imagine her being like, Aha, a son. She's like, Look at me, y'all, a son. This is going to change everything. It's crazy, isn't it, how we are cultures apart from Leah times, but in some ways, we're much the same. 
It might not be a child, but there's plenty of accolades or experiences or opportunities through the years that I've secretly in my heart had trouble not saying, or maybe I did say, see, now I have this. This is going to change everything. Now I'll belong. Now things will finally click into place. Well, she conceives again. And as we know, things and people don't truly satisfy. So she keeps going. She names this one Simeon, which means God is listening. And she says, because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he has given me a son. I'm sure that Simeon was probably a consolation to her. And that's okay. But it doesn't stop there. With her third son, Levi, whose name means adhesion or join together in harmony, it was like a prayer. Maybe like if I say Levi or adhesion often enough, it will finally happen. Jacob will finally cleave to me and be attached to me. Gosh, I know the feeling. Maybe if I do this, they will finally see my true worth and love me. I'll finally be validated. I do know that that kind of thinking and living is striving and it's exhausting. I've been there. I don't know what happened after she had Levi. Maybe it was just the sheer exhaustion of having that many babies in a row. (laughs) Maybe she began to see the glorious and the mundane all around her. Maybe she finally started to realize the place she had in those little boys' lives that she could be making much of. Maybe she finally began to see God as beautiful, and that became the most useful thing in Leah's life. All I know is that somehow something changed in Leah's heart. She conceives once again, and she bears a fourth son, and she calls him Judah, which is the word Yadah. And it means praise. And she said, this time I will praise the Lord. The silence of her worship was broken. I didn't know this, but Liz Curtis Higgs pointed out to us that while she was teaching this, that this is actually the first time in the Bible that the word praise is used. And I love that it was a woman. We hold so much as women. So it's so staggeringly beautiful when we come and offer all that we hold to God in praise. Somehow through the years, Leah's posture changed and she shifted her gaze to God. And I have to believe something in her released Jacob, or at least maybe she became aware of her need to release him. Maybe it was the first time that she was aware that seeking after the love of a man was never going to truly satisfy the true longing in her heart, the longing that God had placed in her for himself. Nathan and I have some dear friends from California named John and Steph Cassetto, and they are dear lead worshipers that are over the worship at Saddleback Church, which is a church that Nathan and I have just grown very fond of and have connected with their worship teams quite often. Well, the Cassettos have two teenage boys, and last year they found out that they were pregnant out of nowhere with boy number three. Surprise! Obviously, they were not trying, and they had just kind of begun to settle into what we call like the third and fourth quarter of the game and parenting. And then they find out that it's like pep rally time for like an entirely new game. (laughs) So needless to say, we were all overjoyed to get the news that their baby boy arrived safely about a month ago. And I was even more blessed to see that they had named him Judah. But Steph posted a picture on Instagram the other day of Judah in this little onesie that said plot twist on it. And she said, God sees the beginning and the end and every plot twist in between. He is so good to us. I can't help but think that some of you have had a plot twist in your life that you just didn't see coming. 
Maybe you need to stop and name that plot twist praise. Bless the Lord over it and see how He might blow open the doors and cause any chains that need to fall to fall. The plot twist for Leah is that even though she was the rejected one, she may have been the one with weak and tender eyes, the one not chosen by Jacob. She was actually the one chosen by God. Jesus actually came from her very lineage. Jesus, as we know, is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He was birthed from the tribe of praise. Isn't that gorgeous? Well, I want to end and play a song that I probably played you before. You might have heard it a few times, but it's a song that I wrote that ended a season of my worship lying dormant. It was the day that the silence of my worship was broken after this long period of time that the enemy was just trying to keep me hushed. I wrote it on my way to Target one day. (laughs) I remember I was headed there to get some things for the house because I was going to be gone for a couple of nights and I needed to just kind of set the kids up. Well, I had a to-do list a mile long and I found myself at a stoplight in my minivan with my shoulders like tensed up to my ears. (laughs) And I felt the Lord speak to my heart and just say, what are you doing? (laughs) It kind of reminds me of him calling out to Adam and Eve in the garden and saying, where are you? He was like, what are you doing? I felt him remind me that he was right there with me. And I began to realize that I was silently worrying and wallowing at that point in my worry. And I was just suddenly aware of the enemy of my soul and how he loves to silence my worship. He wants to keep me suffering in silence and not conversing with the Lord who made me and knows me and loves me. All of a sudden, I just imagined Jesus just right there next to me in the car. And I just decided to break the silence and I began to sing these words. Jesus, you are so wonderful, so wonderful in all your ways. The highest praise is yours alone because you are so wonderful, so wonderful you are. Jesus, you are so beautiful, so beautiful that you outshine the brightest light. There's no one like you because you are so beautiful, so beautiful you are. And my life will burn for you Because your light shined in the darkness. I was hopeless, but you lifted up my head to sing for joy with a song that broke the silence of my worship. Now I'm singing all the day and forevermore. You will be adored because you are wonderful. I'll never forget how the song just flowed out of me. The whole thing was just written right there in the car in a matter of minutes. It forever taught me the lesson of the power of worship in our everyday lives, right there at the stoplight, at the steering wheel, on the front porch, in the waiting, instead of the worry, we can lift up our tehillah, which is one of the Hebrew words of praise, a spontaneous song from our story that says, God, I see you, I acknowledge you, I lay the credit where credit is due, and you are beautiful. And there's nothing more useful to me than finding you beautiful. I'll talk to you soon. Jesus, you are so wonderful. So wonderful in all your ways. The highest praise is yours alone. Because you are so wonderful. 
You will be adored. 